This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. What's the relationship between test scores and gross domestic product? Do higher test scores lead to higher GDPs? These questions may seem a bit strange because most people think of the value of education on a much smaller scale, usually in terms of my children or my education. Will my children earn a higher wage in the future if they do well on school examinations today? If I major in engineering, will I earn a higher income than if I majored in English? The answer to these questions is usually assumed to be a resounding yes. Doing better on examinations or studying subjects that are perceived to be more valuable will result in higher wages at the individual level and higher GDPs at the national level. Such a belief shapes educational policies and influences educational decision-making by families. It has even resulted in a global private tutoring industry that prepares students for tests in hopes of getting ahead. But what if this assumption isn't true? What if the relationship between test scores and GDP isn't so straightforward? With me today are Hikaru Komatsu and Jeremy Rapley. Recently, they have been publishing numerous articles challenging the statistical research supporting the conclusion that higher test scores cause higher GDPs. Instead, they find that test scores don't determine GDP by all that much. Hikaru and Jeremy were kind enough to give FreshEd a graph of their results. You can find it on freshedpodcast.com. Hikaru Komatsu is a research fellow at the Graduate School of Education at Kyoto University, where Jeremy Rapley is an associate professor. Hikaru Komatsu and Jeremy Rapley, welcome to FreshEd. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Will. Uh, before I begin, let me just say how much I really enjoy your show, and I learned so much from it, and I really applaud you for creating this space and doing such high-quality shows week in and week out. So thank you very much for having us. Well, thanks for the kind words. You two have been doing quite a lot of work lately on really challenging some commonplace assumptions between test scores and GDP, uh, gross domestic product. What is the, the normal relationship many researchers have between test scores, what students know, and gross domestic product, how much a country is growing or how much it's worth? Yeah, thanks, Will. Uh, I'll take the first question here. I would say that the common understanding of the relationship between test scores and gross domestic project is the higher your test scores, the greater your future GDP. This is the claim at its most simple But if we try to be more specific, the understanding is that the higher pupil test scores in a particular population in fields that are, say, relevant for economic growth, the higher GDP will be in the future. So relevant fields here are most likely to be defined as math and science, so math and science scores, and also language to a certain extent, in particular reading. So the exact fields that international learning assessments such as PISA measure And in that sense, we can also be more specific about the type of economic model embedded in this common understanding. Uh, Specifically, it is one that envisions an economy growing as a result of technological progress. That is, the more technological innovation and the accumulation of knowledge 
the higher economic growth rates will be in the future. And what sort of evidence exists? Like, do researchers have data, empirical data, that shows that this relationship is correct, that higher test scores will equate to higher GDP in the future? Yes. So in particular, in the last, let's say, 10 years, the empirical research base for these claims has become very strong uh, in some circles. And I'll try to be specific here. The evidence for this common understanding in its current form, I believe, comes from primarily from two researchers. One is Eric Hanischek at Stanford University and Ludger Voisman. I, I apologize, I probably don't pronounce the name right, uh, based at Munich University. And I, I think Eric Hanischek appeared on Fresh Ed quite recently, if I'm not mistaken. In any case, their work constructs roughly a 40-year history of test scores and matches that with 40 years of economic growth worldwide. So roughly from the 1960s to the year 2000. And when I say worldwide, I actually mean about 60 countries globally, mostly the high-income countries that have participated in international assessments, international achievement tests consistently over that period. So to be more specific, their 40-year history of test scores combines data from two international comparative tests, the IEA's SIMS and TIMS studies and the OECD's recent PISA studies. So for GDP, they use a standard Penn World Table data set and listeners who are interested can find kind of full details of this, all of this in our paper. But I think the point here is that uh, when Hanischek and Woesman look at the longitudinal relationship between test scores and GDP growth, they find a very strong correlation. That means that across 60 countries, the higher test score outcomes were, the higher GDP growth was. And I think Hikaru might talk about this in more detail, um, the difference particularly between the idea of association and causality. Um, but the point that I want to make here is that it's been so strong, uh, these empirical claims have been so strong, that that's given a lot of momentum uh, to the idea that there's this strong empirical basis for the linkage between test scores and GDP. And I think that the work of Hanischek and uh, Woesman is spelled out in many places, as maybe I'll discuss later in the interview, but the most comprehensive treatment is found in a book entitled The Knowledge Capital of Nations, Education and the Economics of Growth, which was published in the year 2015. So you said that there's a strong correlation, but is this the relationship between test scores and GDP causal? And I mean, maybe this is a little getting into some of the more technical uh, statistical language here might be useful to try and understand this claim. Yeah, so the, it's a very good point, And it's very important to understand the difference between an association or correlation and causality. Uh, I think we probably are better to wait for uh, Hikaru's discussion of this, but let me kind of lead into that by giving you two quotes where uh, Hanischek and Woesman really make the claim that the relationship is causal, not just the correlation. So the first quote, uh, and this is this kind of crystallizes or kind of encapsulates the whole the whole findings from their their body of work. And then they they say, quote, with respect to magnitude, one standard deviation in test scores measured at the OECD student level is associated with an average annual growth rate in GDP per capita two percentage points higher 
over the 40 years that we observe. Now in that quote, they use the word association, as many of the listeners will have heard. But elsewhere they talk and talk repeatedly about causality. So here's the second quote. They say, Our earlier research shows the causal relationship between a nation's skills, its economic capital, and its long-run growth rate, making it possible to estimate how education policies affect each nation's expected economic performance. So in simple terms, if you can boost test scores, you will achieve higher GDP growth. And this certainty comes out of the idea that the relationship is indeed causal. That level of certainty obviously must impact education policymakers, right? To know that if you increase scores as measured on PISA or TIMS, you will achieve greater economic growth. I mean, it seems like it makes the lives of policymakers a lot easier. Absolutely, Will. We believe that the attraction, both the attraction of this claim and the impact of this claim is growing. And through these types of studies, policymakers who previously had to deal with a very complex equation around education are led to believe that the, the data shows that an aggressive reform policy that increases test scores will, say, 20 or 30 years in the future, lead to major, quite major economic gains. And if I can give you just a, another quote, and I apologize for the quotes, but I, I don't want you to think I'm misphrasing or, or summarizing the work of Eric Hanischek and Wolfsman, but this quote that of theirs shows the types of kind of spectacular education gains or economic gains that policies can expect to achieve if they implement this kind of policies directed towards raising test scores. So here I quote, for lower middle income countries, future gains would be 13 times current GDP and would average out to a 28% higher GDP over the next 80 years. And for upper middle income countries, it would average out to a 16% higher GDP, unquote. So now, Will, if you were a policymaker, you wouldn't want to forfeit these gains, would you? This, so this research becomes really a motivation for policymakers putting a much greater emphasis on not just math and science, but on cognitive test scores across the board. But there's a fascinating bit here I, I want to highlight, and maybe we want to unpack it later on in the interview, but you might expect that this kind of narrowing the focus of education around test scores would create a lot of resistance. Um, but actually, the GDP gains of increasing test scores that Hanischek and Wilson project is actually so great that it is projected to pay for everything in education. So it's not really a choice between alternatives, but instead a sure-win policy versus kind of more of the same policy uncertainty, ambiguity, complexity that we've seen in the past. And sorry, this is a long answer, Will, but I would just really want to emphasize if we talk about how these academic research claims are finding their way into policy or impacting policy, we have to talk about two organizations that have really latched onto these views and are advocating them strongly to policymakers worldwide. And the first is the World Bank, uh, who hired Hanischek and Wozman to connect their academic findings to policymaking for low-income countries. And this report was published by the World Bank as Education Quality and Economic Growth. That's the title, Education Quality and Economic Growth. It was published in 2007. And the second organization that has been really at the forefront here is uh, the OECD. They also hired Hanischek and Wozman to share their findings and discuss the policy implications. And this report was entitled Universal Basic Skills, 
What Countries Stand to Gain, and that was published in 2015. So maybe towards the end of the interview, after we discuss our study, we can return to discuss how these organizations are really central to making that empirical work into concrete policy recommendations. So what sort of problems do you find with Hanushek and Wosman's analysis of the relationship between test scores and GDP? Okay, uh, the problem we found is temporal mismatch. That is, Professor Hanushek used an inappropriate period for economic growth. That is, Professor Hanushek compared test scores recorded during 1960 to 2000 with economic growth for the same period. But this is a little bit strange. Why? Because it takes at least uh, several decades for students to become adults and occupy a major portion of workforce. So, from our perspective, test scores for a given period should be compared with economic growth in subsequent periods. This is the problem we found. So, for instance, it would be like the test scores from 1960 should be connected to the economic growth rates of, say, the 1970s. There needs to be some sort of gap between the two. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So then in your study, I mean, did you do this and, and what did you find? We did this. Our study is very simple. We compared test scores for 1960 to 2000 which is exactly the data used by Professor Hanshek. We compare this data with economic growth in subsequent periods, such as 1980 to 2000, 1990 to 2010, or something like that. And we found that the relationship between test scores and economic growth were much, much weaker than that reported by Professor Hanshek. Uh, probably audience would see a figure in the web uh, in the website of Freshhead, and there would be two figures. Left one is the original one, reported by Professor Hanshek, and there is a strong relationship between economic growth and test scores. While the right one is that we found. And the relationship is very unclear. So uh, let me uh, explain how weak the relationship is. When test scores for 1960 to 2000 was compared with economic growth for 1995 to 2014, only 10% of the variation in economic growth among countries was explained by the variation in test scores. That is, the remaining 90% of the variation in economic growth should be responsible for other factors. This means that it is totally unreasonable to use test scores as the only factor to predict future economic growth. And this is what Professor Hanshek did in his study and policy recommendations. So in your study, you found that 10% of the variation of GDP can be explained by the variation of test scores. What percentage did Hanushek and Walsman's study uncover? Probably the percentage was 
around 70, and we try to replicate Professor Hanshek's finding, and in our case, the percentage was 57 or so, and the difference between 57 and 70 would be caused by the difference in the version of the data we used. In order to extend the time period, we used an updated version of the data. The data set is exactly the same, but the difference is only the version. So the difference between 50% and 70% is pretty minimal, but the difference between 10% and 70% is enough to question the, basically, the conclusions that are drawn from that data. Yeah, right. If the relationship uh, originally reported by Professor Hanshek is causal, we should have found a comparably strong relationship between test scores for a given period and economic growth for subsequent periods, but we found very weak uh, relationships. So it suggests that the relationship originally reported by Professor Hanishek does not always represent the causal relationship. This is our point. It seems like this is a very profound point that could be rather earth-shattering for many people's assumptions about education and its value for economic growth. Thanks, Will. I'd like to fill in a little bit, pick up on what uh, Komatsu-sensei was, was arguing there. One of the important points to understand about this 70% of the variation is explained by test scores. The strength of that correlation leads to very strong policy recommendations. So I'm going to try to unpack a little bit of what I said earlier um, because I I think it's an important point. Uh, I'll try to do it academically first and then I'll try to give a simple version that will be a lot easier for listeners to understand. But basically, if, if you have a correlation a causality link that strongly, then Hanishek and Woosman are claiming that you can first increase your test scores and it will produce so much excessive growth in the future that you can redirect that excessive growth back into all other types of educational goods that you need. So in terms of equity, in terms of inclusiveness, you could even redirect that much extra money into healthcare, to sustainability goals, all of these things. So as we both know, These are two sides of the camp. Is education for economic growth or is it for equity? Is it for inclusiveness? Is it personal development? These are the types of debates that have always been with education as as an academic study. But he's able to transcend. They are able to transcend that debate um, based on the strong causal claims. So just to fill that in um, academically. So the claim is that if 3.5% of GDP for, is spent for education, and he, this is from the World Bank report in 2007, but if over 20 or 30 years you could increase your test scores by 0.5 standard deviation, it would lead to 5% higher GDP on average. And quote, this growth dividend would more than cover all the primary and secondary school spending. What that means is if you focus on raising cognitive levels, test scores, you could get enough growth that you would ultimately get more money for education, for whatever types of educational goals you want to pursue. In the 2015 OECD report, Hanishek and Woosman write that the, quote, the economic benefit of cognitive gains carries tremendous potential 
as a way to address issues of poverty and limited health care and to foster new technologies needed to improve the sustainability and inclusiveness of growth. So as I mentioned before, instead of a trade-off between growth-related policies and equity, the Hanischek results are so strong that they suggest that first raising test scores will eventually produce enough extra gain to pay for everything. So this really relieves them of the need to engage in the kind of debates over priorities that have taken place for as long as education policy has been around. Now, if that sounds academic, I apologize. Let me try to put it in more concrete terms uh, to make it easier Thank to you. understand. Sure. So if the United States, based on the PISA 2000 scores, could have a 20 or 30 year reform plan that would eventually lead them to achieve the level of Finland or Korea's PISA scores in 2006. Hanishek claims that, Hanishek and Wolfson claims that GDP, United States GDP, would be 5% bigger. Now, Hanishek really spotlights that in 1989, the governors of, of the United States came together with then President uh, George Bush. And they promised by the year 2000 to make America number one in the world in math and science. So at that time, it would have been a 50-point gain. Uh, and so Hanischek argues uh, in a different work uh, by, produced by Brookings called Endangering Prosperity that if the U.S. would have stayed the course in 1989 and actually achieved the goals rather than getting distracted, its GDP would be 4.5% greater today. And that would allow us to solve all of our distributional, our, I'm American, apologies, our distributional or equity issues that have constantly plagued American education. And even in more concrete terms, Hanishek is, is based on that strong causality. He's saying that the gains would actually equal, and I quote, 20% higher paychecks for the average American worker over the entire 21st century. So he's reading the future with that relationship that he assumes he can read the future and basically says that focus on test scores first and worry about everything else later because we're going to increase so much GDP that we'll be able to pay for everything that education needs. That's kind of the policy gist. That's absolutely right, Will. And he made this calculation for the United States. As you can imagine, he's based in the United States. But if you look at the OECD report in 2015, they actually make the same calculations for all countries worldwide. So we spotlight that in our full paper uh, in the introduction, just picking up the case of Ghana, because OECD uh, really picked up the case of Ghana and say you would have uh, this huge economic gain if you could just stay the course on raising test scores. So these are future predictions or projections. Has there ever been like an, a real-life example of, like, of it working? the way Hanushek and Walsman theorize? Well, I believe that they would probably argue that the PISA data itself shows that it works. So, of course, you have up and down fluctuations of individual countries, but they, I think they would have a hard time showing a particular country or giving you a case of a particular country who enacted reforms and then achieved higher GDP growth. It's all abstracted to the level of correlation and causality rather than brought back into kind of concrete terms of particular countries. And your analysis obviously shows that those future projections are incorrect or wouldn't necessarily work out the way Hanushek and Wilsman claim. 
you know, how do we begin to theorize this connection between test scores and GDP? Like, what sort of implications does your study have on education policymakers? In my opinion, or according to the data, it is okay to say that uh, improving test score would lead to higher economic growth on average, but actually, test scores are only one factor, as we found. As we said, only 10% of the variation in economic growth was explained by the variation in test scores. So, in that sense, education or test scores are only one factor affecting economic growth. And, as we see, there are huge variation in fiscal uh, capital, land, or enterprise between countries, and those should affect economic growth. So, education is only one of those factors. This is, I think, reasonable understanding of the relationship between economic growth, education, and other factors. So, in a sense, it, we recognize that education plays some role in future economic growth. But there are other things that also affect future economic growth, and we shouldn't lose sight of them either. Yeah, right. You're right. So the problem Professor Hemshek had is that he believed or assumed that it is the sole factor, and he uses only test scores to predict future economic growth. But the world is not so simple. This is our point. And it seems like it's a simple point you're making, but like I said, I think it's quite profound because it really upsets what countries are pursuing in their educational goals. I mean, it challenges the rise of PISA. I mean, is, are all of these countries that are trying to join PISA, is this actually what they should be doing, right? I mean, for me, the policy implications become so much more difficult and the confidence of certain policy prescriptions kind of goes out the door. Yeah, well, we would wholeheartedly agree with that summary of of kind of the implications of our study it is a simple idea and it's it's pretty obvious even to let's say master's level students that education is not that complex but one of the problems is all of this big data creates all the potential for kind of this dog fight using data up at the higher stratosphere and people can't really touch that so as long as you are up there fighting it out then it it seems to be pretty solid. And I think that, to be very honest, actually neither Hikaru or I really like doing this work that much. <laughs> right. To be right. very honest, we don't really enjoy this work. We'd rather be thinking about big ideas and complex ideas and doing those types of things. But the problem is, is that it blocks the view, the, these simple views of education block the complexity or the depth of what we should be seeing in these ecologies of education or these types of things. Now, that was a very kind of big picture response. But if if we have time, I'd like to talk more specifically about the specific policy recommendations and what are the implications of our study. So we believe that our research findings have recommendations, but these are not really recommendations in the usual sense of identifying a best practice or a magic bullet or as a magical potion that will improve education worldwide. 
Instead, the implications of our research is what we might call negative policy recommendations. And by that I mean it helps policymakers realize what they should not do. Specifically, it tells policymakers that they should not be seduced by promises that focusing on raising test scores and purely test scores in areas such as science, technology, math is a surefire policy that will raise GDP growth rates. And it tells them not to believe uh, kind of advisors who would come in and tell them that raising test scores alone would lead to enough GDP future growth to, quote, end the financial and distributional problems of education, unquote. Now, I want to even be more specific about this, uh, more concrete. Two points. As most listeners will know, one of the biggest educational policy trends over the last two decades has been PISA, and there are currently plans to extend PISA to low-income countries through the PISA for Development exercise. I think that by 2030, the OECD and the World Bank plan to have PISA in every country worldwide. Despite a whole range of critiques from academics, from practitioners, from just the normal belief that education is more complex than that, uh, the central rationale for the expansion of PISA testing is that it will lead to higher GDP growth. Uh, in effect, countries are being persuaded to sign up to PISA because of the types of claims that we reviewed throughout this, throughout this interview. But our research shows that this will not happen. Some of my favorite research in recent years has come from scholars around Paul Morris at the Institute of Education in London, working with young scholars Ewan Ald, Yo Yoon, or Bob Adamson in Hong Kong, showing how PISA tests are really driven much more by a range of private companies such as Pearson, ETS, and so on. And scholars like Stephen Ball, Bob Lingard, and Sam Seller also write some great stuff along these lines. And another important line of research comes from folks like Radhika Garor, who writes about the dangers of standardization and how it might ultimately destroy the diversity necessary for future adaptation and innovation in education. And so again, we hope that our research removes the belief that research, that academic research, somehow proves the PISA and GDP linkage. And thus lets policymakers see all of these warnings much more clearly. And if you'll let me quickly go on to the second dimension of really concrete what's happening now is that as many listeners will also know is that the world is the world of education world of development more generally is talking about the post 2015 goals uh, basically what, what what comes after the millennium development goals that were going in the 1990s and in terms of education the sustainable development goal four is the one that deals with education and it sets global targets for improving learning by 2030. And one of the disappointing things we have noticed in these discussions is that it seems the discussions seem to be imitating the OECD and World Bank. That is, we see UNESCO and other agencies referring explicitly to the Hanashek and Woesman studies to argue for why PISA style assessments are the best way to achieve sustainable development goal number four. And so compared to discussions around EFA in the early 1990s, the discussion around the SDG number four seems to be taking this knowledge capital claim as truth, as academic truth. And we worry that this will put the whole world on a course for implementing PISA-style tests and, of course, the change in curriculum that comes in its wake. I don't want to be, you know, kind of too overstate this too much, but we worry that there's really no evidence for that and that these will be very costly exercises that will ultimately do very little to improve education. So again, we hope our study will give policymakers the kind of academic research basis 
for resisting the advances made by the OECD and World Bank. Have you experienced any pushback about some of the findings? Because, I mean, obviously you're challenging some of the wisdom that's taken for granted by the World Bank, by the OECD, by private companies, like you said, Pearson and ETS, uh, the Educational Testing Service, which produces a whole bunch of tests. Um, So, I mean, one would imagine that your negative recommendations that come out of your findings may ultimately create a pushback from those whose interests are being challenged. Yeah, uh, I guess we would love to have a pushback because pushback (laughs) implies uh, an explicit engagement. Again, our findings are not new that there's no link between educational outcomes and GDP growth. These claims are very, this idea is actually very old. But what happens is that with each kind of wave of data that comes out, that kind of dogfight that I was talking about kind of gets, it goes from maybe kids throwing rocks at each other from different trees up to hot air balloons, up to uh, airplanes, up to jet planes, and it just keeps going up. There's no real engagement with the ground level realities Mm -hmm. that would refute all of this. So... If we were to get pushback, we would welcome it. We would love to see uh, the evidence because our mind is not made up. It's quite possible. Uh, I mean, there are no certainties and it would be wonderful to see a more elaborate discussion around these ideas. So our, our results are conclusive, but in the sense of with that data set, it conclusively disproves a particular hypothesis or claim but they're not conclusive in the terms of a terminus of learning. There's always more that we can understand about the relation, the complex relationship between society, economics, culture, these types of things. So we would really welcome that as a way to elaborate. Well, I really hope that you can kind of open up this door for a much deeper engagement to get to some of those big questions that you obviously have in mind. But Hikaru Komatsu and Jeremy Rapley, thank you so much for joining Prashad. It was really uh, a pleasure to talk today. Thanks for having us. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Will. Keep up the great work. We all appreciate the hard work you're doing uh, on behalf of educational researchers and educational practitioners worldwide. Hikaru Komatsu and Jeremy Rapley are based at the Graduate School of Education at Kyoto University. Please check out freshheadpodcast.com for their graph and links to the various articles they've recently written. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. FreshEd is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of FreshEd by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. FreshEd's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. An original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.